Hello again. Welcome to another VW podcast. This is the Silicon Valley Review. I'm Kevin. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about season five, episode three of Silicon Valley. This one's titled Chief Operating Officer. Is it titled Chief Operating Officer? It's entitled Chief Operating Officer. Titled. I think it's titled. Yeah. But I think people say... I mean, I think you can say it, but... By the way, I want to go back to something we talked about in one of our last podcasts, Penultimate. Mm-hmm. When I was watching the Masters this weekend, lots of references to the Penultimate pairing. That is That was a different series that was in the Office Hour series, so right. I highly encourage you to check it out. Yeah, but penultimate means the next to last. Correct. Just an interesting word. We'll make that today's word of the day. Try and use it. All right, so Aaron, this episode of Silicon Valley, I'll just read you the description that we pulled from the web. IMDb. Richard's infatuation with another company's COO causes friction with members of Pied Piper. Dinesh gets a new roommate. So what were your overall impressions of the episode? I liked it more than the first two of the season, but still, I don't think as strong as previous seasons. I agree. I mentioned to this this to you earlier. I feel like this episodes or the show's going sideways. I don't really see the path that it's headed on. Right. This much hubbub over a chief operating officer, which is probably one of the later roles you're going to see filled in a startup. Yeah. Right. As a standalone role, I mean. So let's talk about what the operating officer is doing. So if you think about a startup, the key positions are going to be the CEO, which mm-hmm. is usually the president, almost always the right. president, the CTO, right? The chief technology officer. And that's probably it. An operating officer is going to be more focused on day-to-day operations, right. while a CEO should be focused on long-term strategic planning right. vision. Yeah. CEO's big picture. Right. COO's in the in, in the, the weeds pecking order. Almost always, Aaron, the CEO's at the top. Right. And even though the COO, the CEO might have, excuse me, COO and CTO might have C-level names, usually it's just the CEO, especially in a smaller organization like right. a startup. Yeah. I think you get the situation in a larger organization where you have those guys and they would then report to the board. You know, let's use this as an example, or excuse me, as an opportunity to just briefly talk about the levels of management or decision-making at a startup. Yeah. Okay. Because this is something that comes up all the time. So first of all, everyday decisions such as what kind of computers are we going to buy? Uh, what co-working space are we going to sign up with? What projects are we working on? Or what's kind of our path? You, know, you saw all those stickies on Richard's right. board right a couple episodes ago. Who's doing what at what point in time? Who's making those decisions, Aaron? It can be management level decisions in right. terms of not in terms of management of the company, but like I'm a manager of this company. Day to day operations. And and Aaron's I think accurate to you're you're accurate to say management level because a lot of times early stage companies don't have those positions defined. But we're talking about the president or the CEO and everyone underneath that. So those day to day decisions are made at that level. Then you have your big strategic decisions, right? Strategic decisions are generally made at the direction or under the recommendation of the board. In the event of a corporation, you have a board of directors. Those decisions will be setting the budget for the business, maybe deciding to pursue new product lines, or maybe a pivot, borrowing large sums of money, right? If the president wants to go put $100 on his credit card for supplies, that's technically borrowing money, but that's not a board-level decision. Right. But if the company wants to take out a $100,000 line of credit, 
to manage cash flow, yeah, that's usually a board level decision. Yeah, and even if the CEO wants to fly to New York mm-hmm. to go pitch to investors, that's going to be the CEO's decision. It's not going to be a board level decision. But if the CEO wants to buy all new desks and furniture and it's going to cost $50,000, probably needs, depends on the stage of the company, right? right? Early stage company probably needs some oversight. Right. Later stage, it's probably within the budget. But again, that's why you have the budget. Right. There should be expenses that have already been approved in the budget and then anything extraordinary would need board level. Board might also help to hire and fire other high level executives. Yeah. The board sometimes will have some influence over your professional advisors, your law firm, or your or your accountants. Recognizing that early on, the board is the founder or the founders, right? right? But once you get to a seed round, you probably have a formal board. And then you have your highest level of decision-making, which is for fundamental decisions. Aaron, what are those? Those are going to be selling the company or merging with another company or any of those sort of fundamental decisions. Yeah, I think you're right. It's selling the company, merging, filing for bankruptcy converting to another entity type, right? maybe a couple more, substantially licensing all of your IP, which is basically an effective Selling sale. The yeah. Those are fundamental decisions, and those are absent any sort of contractual provisions. Otherwise, those are generally made by the shareholders right. or, the, or the members of an LLC. So the shareholders get to decide, get to help pick those fundamental decisions. And then the other thing the shareholders generally decide is election of the directors. Correct. So the shareholders, if you think about this, for the listeners out there, from a pure efficiency standpoint, you can't have all the shareholders chiming in on what office supplies to buy or even what does our budget look like. That would take forever, be completely ineffective, and you had a lot of you beginning a lot of opinions that you just don't want. So instead, you should let the shareholders make the fundamental decisions and then they entrust everything else to the board. And the board can't necessarily do everything, so the board entrusts a lot of things to the C-level. Right. Yeah. And in a later stage company that has hundreds of shareholders, if you need, say, 51% to make a decision, well, trying to wrangle enough shareholders to get 51% might be difficult. People travel. People have busy work schedules. So it's impractical. People die. Right. And it's impractical <laughs> to, to say, yeah, we have to get 51% of the stockholders to vote on every single thing. So- what you do is the stockholders hire the board of directors, essentially, and the board of directors hires the management, and then the management hires the day-to-day operations people, and that helps sort of reduce friction in terms of day-to-day decision-making. So this pyramid of decision-making, I'm going to call it? it Not a pyramid scheme. (laughs) It just happens to be in the shape of a pyramid. But if you think about that was uh, like the conjoined triangles of success, right? Exactly. The pyramid of decision-making. So you have actually a lot of stakeholders at the very top, which would be the shareholders, but they're only making a few decisions, very important decisions. Then you have a handful of stakeholders, which is the board, maybe with some input from advisors or board observers, but the board making critical decisions, a handful more decisions. And then you have one person or just maybe two or three people being the operational managers, the president, the CEO, maybe the COO, making a number of less important decisions. I view it as an hourglass. Okay. You've got you know, a lot of shareholders mm-hmm. at the top, mm-hmm. and then it narrows to the board of directors, and then it narrows to the CEO. And then it widens out and you have more day-to-day managers sure. and then, you know, everyday employees. That's a that's a great example. Can I need you to, I need to patent that? Yeah, or, you need to patent or <laughs> trademark it. And if you could work conjoined in there, yeah. I'd appreciate that. Right. Throw back to to who's it, Jack Barker? That's Jack Barker. Yeah. yeah. So this level of decision making, it's really important for you to understand as a founder how this works, knowing that early on 
you're the founder, you're the board, and you're the shareholder, yeah. right? So you're, you're electing everything. Now, a lot of times people come and they engage us and they say, well, who do you represent? We represent the company. Right. And they say, but what about me? I'm the founder. We say, you are the company, right? right? You're the board, you're the sh- sole shareholder, or you control the shareholder. So whatever you say is going to go. Yeah. And as a company matures, I think sometimes it can be hard for founders to recognize that, yes, initially you were the founder, the shareholder, the board of directors, the CEO, everything. And as a company grows and as it begins to take on more and more outside capital, all of a sudden that founder is not the only shareholder and might, you know, might not even be a majority shareholder, might not be, might not have board control. That can sometimes throw founders for it a It can loop. scare them. Yeah. yeah, it can scare them. But that's the natural progression of things. Right. So as a founder, if you're do, doing a good job of hiring your board or getting people on your board, and if you're finding good investors, good shareholder investors, then you should have confidence that the collective wisdom and vision of those people for whatever decisions they're making are going to be what's best for your company. You know, Aaron, most of our founders understand this, but I would say every once in a while you get the guys in here say, I don't ever want to give up control. Right. I don't. That's going to be a problem. So like I said, it's important for founders to understand this, to understand how this works. This isn't necessarily how it always works due to voting agreements and contractual obligations. So understand that this is the basic framework. The president and CEO make day-to-day decisions. The board makes strategic decisions. And the shareholders make fundamental decisions. However, those things can be controlled, such as election of directors is usually set in sort sort of a document via a, or excuse me, in conjunction with a series seed or a series A round or a series B round. You might say certain investors or certain groups of investors get to elect directors. The CEO is always a director. The common gets to elect directors. Same thing with selling the company. You can have drag along provisions, which force a sale, force people to opt into a sale provided a certain threshold is met. So I want you to understand that that basic framework is always going to exist and then you build on top of that. But knowing those three levels of operational control or influence is very critical. So back to Silicon Valley, Richard is learning some of this as he goes along. Now, Richard gets starry-eyed about this gentleman named Ben Burkhart who approaches him at a party. First of all, the way that they met, that was funny. I thought Dana's role was really funny, yeah. right? Rich, Jared's trying to set them up. Yeah. It, He's founder dating. It was so awkward, but I mean, I wouldn't really expect anything else from Jared. So this is, I think, a complaint I have with the show. And we talked about the Dinesh thing. It's like they're pushing. Jared's already awkward. The way that guy plays the character, it's brilliant. I love that he is wears a white t-shirt and sleeps on his guest room couch so that Richard can sleep in his bed. And Jared doesn't think anything of it. And Jared makes comments, like I said last week, where it's hard to only have to save half your family. I've been there before. So he's already awkward forcing him. It's just, it was over and over with this Dana thing. And Dana sent me a text and said he wants to meet. Dana's character was funny because Dana was the consummate guy who you think is totally uninterested or apathetic or maybe even doesn't like the situation, but he actually did. Right. That was just him. Yeah. Even though Dana walked, it was very like slow and deliberate and intentional. I thought that was funny, but yeah, they're forcing Jared. The way they're forcing this Dinesh down, Dinesh is just an idiot and making terrible decisions after right. a terrible decision. It seems like they got a bad writer. <laughs> and it seems forced. Yeah, really, it, really it forced. It, and and doesn't make a lot of sense. So Richard goes to this party. He gets wooed by this Ben Burkhart guy. 
I don't know what that character's from. I have to look him up. I feel like he was on a soap opera or something many years ago. It's really interesting to me because when that character, Ben Burkhart, first appeared and started talking, I was like, oh, that, this guy seems impressive. I was watching the show with my wife, and she right off the bat said, that guy's bad news. And Interesting. I was like, no, he's, he's, he's fine. He's yeah. And as we get to the end of the episode. So, yeah. So, he ended up putting Richard in a really bad position and lying to Dane about how they came together. This whole thing about that guy being bad news. You know, I think we all thought that Jack Barker was going to be great, but he ended right. up being bad news. Gavin's been bad news from the get-go. You know, the only guy that I think we really can trust in this whole thing is the lawyer. Yeah, for sure. Ron LeFlam. I mean, I feel like that's sort of life advice. <laughs> yeah, but, but really, the lawyer's been playing the exact same role the entire time, right? right? A little cocky, kind of casual, yeah. but just trust me. And he's been there. And I think the lawyer, and again, even in this episode, he, Richard's going to the lawyer for advice, which is outside of venture advice. And I thought this was so perfect because we get this, right, yes. Aaron? Richard's got a landlord-tenant issue which is a very niche area of the law. The venture attorney probably knows nothing about it, deals with it very, very sporadically. But Richard leans on his lawyer. He wants to go to his lawyer and ask questions. Even Jin Yang was in the episode with the lawyer. I thought that was really fitting for us because doing all the venture work that we do, we end up doing a much broader scope of things, right? Right. We have to be, as venture attorneys with startups, we have to be pretty good at just everyday operational issues. Employment contracts, commercial agreements, contractor agreements, terms of service and privacy policy. That's important because it's important to our clients. But then it starts to go into, can you help with my landlord-tenant issue? I've got maybe this civil litigation question. Maybe some criminal maybe issues. Maybe some criminal issues. Maybe some family law issues. Right. Which, I mean, we're always happy to just kind of give our two cents and then refer that out right, right. to someone who does, who does that on a regular basis and who's actually good at it. But I thought that was a good scene because that's typical that that venture lawyer would be dealing with some of Richard's non-company related problems. So Ben Burkhart and Richard enter into this secret dating or the secret affair, which again, like Aaron said, was so forced. It, it, it was kind of silly. Then the they're in a restaurant and Dana walks into the restaurant. And- I mean, I did like that restaurant scene where Ben abruptly leaves because Dana comes in and then the waiter de- delivers to Richard two pot pies, one without carrots. Right. And Richard says he sometimes <laughs> likes carrots. That made me laugh out loud. Which right. There hasn't been a whole lot of that in the first couple of episodes. But yeah, that was funny. Then let's talk for a second about Guilfoyle because you had to bring Bitcoin into this yeah. somehow. I like how they just, they just slyly brought in crypto mining because of course these guys are dealing with Bitcoin. Like we right. don't need to set it up. We don't need to explain what it is. Yeah. Guilfoyle's running a rig remotely. Yes. Right? And Guilfoyle's so smart to set a trigger as to he knows what his cost is to mine versus what the value of Bitcoin is. And then that trigger, which is a very quick blurb from some death metal song. And it's very loud. Very loud. And somewhat jarring. And no one can get to it because he's got it password protected and stuff. So I did find that amusing. I hope Guilfoyle makes a ton of money mining Bitcoin. Then we've got this other plot line of the appliance, the, the Seppin? Seppin, I think it was. So Gavin somehow, how did Gavin figure, oh, so Dinesh gets drunk off of a few beers with his new roommate, tells him- And the new new roommate who works for Pied Piper- Is a mole for Gavin. Correct. They kind of skipped over how he got to be a mole, right? right? Did he used to work there? I'm sure we'll see it in later episodes. So that guy's a mole for Gavin, So, which makes me wonder why he was so apprehensive about taking on Dinesh as a roommate. If he's been a mole before- yeah. 
then he you would have thought he would have embraced that. But that was a funny scene because right. the guy's like, F, yeah. And then, uh, you know, Dinesh says, F, yeah, we're going to yeah. be roommates and stuff. So anyway, Dinesh gets drunk, reveals to the new roommate, can't remember his name. So he tells them that they had used a separate fridge. If you recall back, was it season four or season three? It was four. They had all that data to offload for that one client that they had, right? Yeah. And their servers were frying. So they figured out a way to load them up and use some some excess capacity in the SEPIN uh, network. The smart fridges. No, smart fridges, that's right. Which, uh, which then they reprogrammed to say yeah. something crass or funny. So somehow Gavin, or excuse me, the mole tells Gavin. Gavin goes and tells Seppin. Seppin then shows up. This was this was hilarious. So the president and the chief operating officer, or whatever of Seppin, just gonna show up at the startup's office to negotiate terms. Well, they, didn't they file? They filed. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they did file a lawsuit. lawsuit, ten million damages. Yep. But then they got to a mediation, right. With no lawyers, right? A day after they filed. Also, if you're listening to this, please never go into mediation without a lawyer. <laughs> no, please just try not to do things to get yourself into mediation. But right. when you do get in there, have a uh, have a lawyer with you. Have a a, a litigator lawyer, right. not, not me, not me. Right. Yeah, no, uh, you know, call call somebody who has experience right. with that. But they end up negotiating a deal because they're able to tell Seppin what some of their security flaws are, right? And then remind Seppin that they were recording audio when they shouldn't have been. Another, Although, but they didn't actually know that Seppin was recording audio. They just assumed that because they couldn't figure out how Seppin had figured out that Pied Piper was using their network. Oh, and so I didn't they, catch that. Yeah, so basically, they could not figure out how Seppin had figured out that they were using it. And so they automatically assumed, well, the fridge must be listening to us at all right. times. And basically... They called Seppin out on that. Got you right. Because then at the end, Guilfoyle goes and doubles checks everything, and then he right. says he must have a mole. Okay, so the point I was about to make is that I think this is interesting. Guilfoyle is so confident in his skill set that when this first case said, Guilfoyle, you must not have cleared the, right. the, the data correctly, scrubbed it correctly. He says, nope, I did. Yeah. But then he goes and double checks it and comes back and says, I did. Right? Right. There's no way they could have gotten they could have gotten that from me, so therefore we must have a mole. And then you have it at the end. Where they have a, uh, they have the scene with the mole talking to Gavin's head security guy. Right. One other plot line that I'm not sure I quite understand in his new home that he now owns because he took from Eric is Jin Yang, mm-hmm. and he's got his whiteboard with all of his ideas on it, yes. which are just American companies with translated to the like, Chinese characters. Chinese, yeah, underneath. Yeah. So he's going to just take all the great ideas of America, which isn't a bad idea. I mean. I think they're already doing that yeah, in China. in China, but if you're listening in the Dominican Republic, there's probably some opportunity down there. And lastly, Richard gives the COO job to Jared, which what was Jared before? Biz I Dev Chief? I, yeah, I guess so. I, I had always assumed that he was the COO. Right. So did I. But, but, but Jared never had a real issue with, you know, Richard talking to Ben as well. No. So but I think that's just Jared's role. So let's talk for a second, Aaron, about poaching employees, right? Yeah. Or about this process that Richard was trying to undertake to hire Ben. And I like that Ben leaves his job and shows up. Ben just walks in. What's up, guys? What are we building today? <laughs> that was funny. There are a lot of rah-rah guys like that. What can you do to protect yourself or protect your company from having poachers or you know other companies take your employees? Well, I think it all depends on where you are, what state you're in. Because if my limited employment law knowledge is correct, I believe in California non-competes are unenforceable except in the context of an acquisition. And in that case, I think there's uh, there are some pretty 
harsh limitations in terms of who can be bound by them and the time uh, limit. Yeah, in California, almost impossible to right. enforce a non-compete. My understanding is that as well, unless it's in conjunction with a sale. In Texas, we could generally see them at 12 to 18 months. Right. They have to be reasonable in geographical scope there and time. There you go. They have to be reasonable in both of those things. Geographical scope meeting. If I have a law firm here and I try to get Aaron under a non-compete, I can't say, Aaron, you can't go practice anywhere in the States. Well, actually, I don't think lawyers at all can be they bound can't. by non-competes. They can't because of the nature of the practice and ownership of clients is a very difficult right. thing to claim. But if I had a services business Correct. that was just at one location, and yeah. I said, Aaron, you're bound throughout the United States, that wouldn't be unenforceable. But I could probably say, let's just say I was a mechanic and Aaron were from my mechanic shop. And I could probably say, Aaron, you can't go within five miles of here. Right. If I said, Aaron, you can't go within 180 miles of here, again, that's just not going to be reasonable. Right. So those are left for the court to deter- to decide. But you could have your employees sign non-compete agreements. All right. But there's nothing wrong with a third party coming and calling your company and asking Hey, you want to come work for me? Yeah, I think probably the safest thing to do is have them sign a, a sort of reasonable non-compete, but also make sure you have them signing confidentiality agreements so that they can't take proprietary. So information that's the key and, thing there, right? Is everyone can sign a confidentiality agreement. Right. So if you're gonna, you're going to lose your employees at some yeah. point in time, just make sure they're not taking the ideas, they're not divulging things about whether it's your pr- proprietary technologies, your marketing plans, your financial records. Plan as if. All of your employees will leave. Take those steps, and then you know when it ultimately happens that an employee leaves, at least you've planned for it and you sort of have those contingencies in place. So while we've got this conversation open, you want three things contract in a contractual agreement with your employees. One is ownership of IP. If you're paying them whatever they create, you're going to own. Second, confidentiality. Third, for most employees, restrictive covenants. Now, mm-hmm. for low-level employees, they're probably not enforceable. But restrictive covenants meaning a non-compete, a reasonable non-compete, and then also a non-solicitation. Right. So they can't leave and come and take your employees. So just right. keep that in mind. You have to have those, at least two, if not all three of those things in your employment agreement. So back to Ben and Richard, there's really nothing wrong with what Richard was doing, but there might have been something ethically wrong with it, right? Or just at least within the community. Now, I don't know, you know, maybe Silicon Valley super cutthroat. I would think here in town, if there were two founders who knew each other, at least in a cursory manner, the way Richard and Dana knew each other, they would be really, really inappropriate for Richard to do. And that's not something we would advise. Let's just say Aaron, our client came to us and said, man, I am dying to have this dude COO. I think he would like to work for me. I know the founder really well. How would you handle that? Well, I guess first you have to talk to that COO to figure out if they would even be interested in working for you. If they would, then I think that's a conversation you need to have with the CEO. Now, you need to be careful because obviously if you're having that conversation with the COO, you need to be upfront with them to say, hey, listen, if this is something that we're both interested in, I need to have a conversation with the CEO because you don't want the COO to feel like, oh, I, hey, like this guy went behind my back and talked to my current boss. I think that's a great Great point. I would t- I would advise a client the same. Look, if you if you feel that strongly about it and you think that guy wants to come work for you, have the courage or the chutzpah to go talk to yes. the CEO and let them know. The other thing I want to talk about briefly is, so those are ways, some things you can do You know, contractually. We talked about having an employment agreement. Hopefully, you're going to make your, place a, your office a great place to work. You know, there's a, lots of studies out there that say, for most people, money is not the number one motivator. It's important, right. but it's not the number one motivator. You know, Ownership of your job, feeling like you're growing, feeling like you have responsibility and coming to an environment that the employee is attached to or feels that they like or is fun for them, those things can easily outweigh having to pay the most in the business. Yeah, no, and it's that's not to say 
people don't care about money at all. You still have to make sure that they're not having to work a second job right. in order to, to right. scrape by. But yeah, it's I think below market salaries are more palatable to employees if where they're working is fun and there are other perks and they are treated perhaps more humanely than, than some of the other places. Yeah, you have to understand that compensation or salary is an important factor. It is not the deciding factor. And there's lots of studies out there. So for any of you with growing businesses, really encourage you to start taking a peek into management books or these surveys that HR companies put out there about hiring. And after you read enough of that, you'll start to get a sense for it and you'll build your own culture. It's like college applications. It's a holistic approach. That's right. All right, Aaron. So that wraps up season five, episode three. Questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com. You can find show notes on our blog, VelaWoodLaw.com. Click on the blog or via the link in the iTunes episode description for those of you listening through iTunes. And in closing, remember, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. This is the Silicon Valley Review. Five stars only. Five stars. The Velawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at